world are gathering on this day to worship Jesus, to worship God, to gather together. And the historian will look at it and say, why? How did this begin? Why did this begin? And all historians can all, whether they're atheists, Christian, Buddhist, whatever, everybody agrees, everybody knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the church that we see gathering together today began in the first century in a region called Palestine, kind of historically known as Israel, that east side of the Mediterranean Sea. We all know it began there. But where historians differ and where people differ is why it began. Why did the church start? Why did it begin? Now, the Bible gives a clear answer to this. Obviously, it shows, well, it's because Jesus, our Messiah, was resurrected from the dead. And this gave shape to their church. It explains why they did what they did, why they did away with certain things, why they transitioned away from certain things, why they put, why they put certain things front and center and built their faith on those uh, beliefs, on those uh, doctrines, it shaped everything for them, and it changed everything. Now, why do I think this is important? This is a little bit odd. This is different, right? You don't typically come to church on Sunday thinking, hey, we're going to do history this morning. It's a little bit different. But I was thinking through this, and, and, and I did been reading different books, Two books that were really important um, that really shaped this message um, was Reasons for God, Reason for God by Timothy Keller, and N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. Highly recommend both of these books. Start with Reason for God. Uh, it's a much easier read. It also talks about a lot of other stuff that is amazing, but he devotes one chapter to the resurrection of God. And in that chapter, he quotes N.T. Wright's book like crazy. So if you really like that chapter, you really like this book, and you're like, hey, I want something significantly more in-depth and dense and thorough, N.T. Wright's your guy, all right? But I warn you, it's dense, it's thorough. You're going to go places you never thought you could ever go or wanted to go, all right? But it's fantastic. And so I want you to know it's not like I just, you know, I just think up all this stuff. These, uh, these are really these two men's ideas and I'm just kind of the middleman bringing this to you because I think it would bless us. And the reason why I, I really want to share this is because I want you all to be confident that your faith in God is built on a historical event. Your faith in God is built on something that actually happened. I get it. We're 2,000 years removed from this event. And we live in a post-enlightenment world, meaning science is kind of the dominating um, uh, philosophy, if you will, as to what we know is true, what we can see, touch, feel, taste, hear. And so when we talk about something 2,000 years ago, it's really easy to be like, yeah, did it really happen? You know, I wasn't there. I didn't witness it. Did it really happen? Right? And again, as we know from the New Testament, Paul is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament is so clear that everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything is built on that foundation. And I want you all to be secure and confident that you're not just putting your faith in something that, well, people are telling me to put their faith in and, and I can't really like think of anything else. So, okay, I'm just going to put my faith in God. You don't have to do that. There is evidence, there is substantial evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was indeed a historical event, an event that happened in history that we can know, we can do history, and we can see it. I want you to feel good about that, all right? I want you to feel good about that. And I know to some of you, you're like, man, I don't need that. I believe, I am confident. That's awesome. I'm just going to give you more foundation, all right? We're going to firm up that foundation even more so. Maybe some of you are like, I maybe am a little bit skeptical. It was 2,000 years ago. It's a little bit hard for me. Maybe I'm wired that way. I'm a little bit more scientific, mathematical, and more logical, and it's a little bit tough to, you know, put my faith in that this really happened because, again, in our world, we know resurrection don't happen. Science says resurrection doesn't happen. When a person's dead, they're dead. They don't come back to life. We don't see people coming back to life here in our day and age. And I get how that can be tough. 
but we can do history and we can see that this actually happened. I also, a second reason why I think this is important, we are all given the commission to go and make disciples. All of us, not just myself, not just my dad, not just pastors, not just the spiritually mature people. Everybody who professes faith in Jesus is called to go and make disciples. And this is the cultural climate that we find ourselves in in North America right now. We have a lot of people. Again, I talked about we're in this post-enlightenment age. A lot of people have real obstacles to Christianity. They have real hang-ups. Science disproves it, right? What would you say to somebody if they said, you know, science disproves God, right? You know that, right? What would you say to someone that says the Bible was written by a bunch of biased people and how in the world they, they spewed their relative truth and how in the world could you trust that over Islam, the Quran, or Buddhism, or Hinduism? What would you say to them? What would you say to them if they said the Bible's ethics is intolerant in our culture? What if they said the Bible is irrelevant to our society as a whole? What would you say to them? Have you thought about that? It's okay if you haven't thought about it. Don't feel like, golly, even myself, you know, I don't have all the answers. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I have a really great answer. I mean, I have an answer, but it may not be an answer that really helps you or helps you to see it. So I don't want you to feel shame or anything like that. But I guarantee you, if you are taking that commission to go and make disciples, you're going to run into people who don't think or think differently. Think in a more logical, scientific-minded way. And I think history is a great place to meet them where they're at, to meet them on their turf, and to help them see the truth. Capital T. Capital T. And that they can know that this thing actually happened. I want you all to be aware of something. Pew Research Center did a poll, and they found that the percentage of Americans who profess faith in Jesus has dropped in the last 10 years by 12%. It's huge. Also, in contrast to that, the number of percentage of Americans who put religious no affiliation, no affiliation with religion, has grown 10% in the last 10 years. Our culture is moving away from faith in God to, I don't know, or I believe in science, or I just don't know what I believe, but I don't believe there's God. This is huge. These are huge percentages in America. And again, the church has to be able to give an answer. One, because we can give an answer. The truth fears no scrutiny. My dad tells us that all the time. The truth fears no scrutiny. Society, ask your questions. Society, bring your hang-ups to us. And let's answer them. Let's help them. All right? And not everybody's asking those questions. Other people want love. They want community. And they're coming to church for those reasons. But some people have some really big hang-ups. I don't believe it. It doesn't make sense. The Bible doesn't make sense. Where is God? I don't see him. Where is he? There's evil in the world. Where is he? What is he doing? Is he just chilling now and leaving us to be? Right? Where was he here? What is he doing? Science doesn't show. Science shows that, you know, there is no God, right? We have to be prepared for this. So we're going to do history this morning, and I'm stoked about it because history is pretty, pretty neat. Let's begin. The his, let's begin with the historical alternative to the resurrection of Jesus. So probably the most prominent alternative to a physical resurrection of Jesus being the main reason for why the church began and why it took the shape that it did. The main alternative reason was that Jesus' followers were so grieved that he died, so saddened that in their grief, they experienced possibly some sort of spiritual experience where they had a vision. Maybe they had a dream. Maybe they were visited by a ghost or a spirit of Jesus that looked like Jesus. And they took it to mean he's alive. He's resurrected. 
And so they started telling everybody, he's alive, he's resurrected. And because the whole world and Jewish, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world were so gullible and they all believed in resurrection that it just took off because everybody believed that kind of stuff back then. And so the church took off. That is the, that is the argument that has gotten the biggest following. There are other arguments. None of those have the following. None of those have the, um, at least, possibilities uh, involved. What do you guys think? Does that sound kind of, okay, maybe you're like, well, yeah, maybe I've thought of that. I'll be honest. I'll to be totally honest with you. Uh, there have been times in my life where I have really doubted its validity. Really doubted. I don't know. I don't know. I'm science. I'm mathematical. I'm logical. And it was hard for me at different times to really say definitively, God is real. And I get it, so I relate to the society, and I relate to these questions big time. And I relate to the struggle. If you're doubting, I, I probably have asked that question to some degree. Not all of them, but I have really felt this way. And so I'll be honest, yes, I have felt, yeah, maybe the disciples, they had some wonky thing, or maybe it was a power play, and they were really mad that their guy didn't win, and he died, and they were like, man, we had a following, we've got to keep this following, so we've got to create something. We've got to get the momentum back. And so we're going to say he's resurrected and we're going to say all this stuff. And oof, here we go. Oh, we're getting a following. Sweet. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. I felt that way. I have felt that way. Maybe you have too. But what's awesome is that we have an answer for that. Look at that ex explanation, that alternative explanation that the disciples of Jesus in their extreme grief, experienced some type of spiritual experience. Again, Paul, Acts chapter 9, they would say Paul on the road to Damascus. He didn't actually, the physical resurrected Jesus didn't actually appear to him. He had some type of like, ooh, Jesus is alive, you know, and that's what caused him to kind of really be the missionary and the builder of the Gentile church, right? That's what they believed they, in their grief, experienced some type of spiritual experience, a vision, a dream of Jesus, and they took it as he's resurrected, he's alive. And then the whole world started buying into it because the whole world believes in resurrection. Why that is wrong right from the get-go is that it assumes that the entire world believed in resurrection, which is false. Cross the board. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do with history. I'm going to show you that the entire world, especially the non-Jewish world, did not believe in resurrection. Period. And in the Jewish world, there's three camps that I'm going to talk about. And only one of them even gave it a possibility that there would be a resurrection. The other two denied resurrection entirely. So if you're Paul, you're Peter, and you're Jesus' disciples, and you're just making this up, you have one heck of an uphill battle trying to convince people of something that they know to be true is false. These worldviews, let's talk about that word real quick before we jump in. I know there's a lot of setup to this thing. The worldviews, what I mean by that? How you view the world. <laughs> Whoa, enlightening. All right? It's what you believe about the world. It's what you believed about yourself. How do you make sense of the world? How do you make sense of yourself? Right? It's also kind of what do you believe about the world? I'll take this for, an, for instance. I do not believe aliens are real. That is a part of my worldview. It is my universal view. Aliens are not real. I kid you not. And if you believe that, that's fine. But nothing you could say would ever convince me otherwise. I guarantee it. There's nothing you could say. Every time I watch the news and there's like UFO sighting, I'm like, idiots. Golly. I'm sorry. That's a little blunt, a little raw, as my dad would say. But I kid you not. I'm like, I just so do not believe in aliens or any other alternate forms of life out there in the universe. I just don't believe it. It is my worldview. You cannot debate me out of it. All right? And every time you would show me this article or this video or explain this, I kid you not, I will explain it as something else. I'll write it off. I'll say it's a drone or it's somebody with a laser pointer or uh, that person was on, you know, drugs or crack or something, you know. I kid you not, I will explain it away. Again, 
If you believe in miracles, right, then you'll see something and you'll be like, miracle. If you don't believe in miracles, if that's a part of your worldview, what will you do if you're faced with something that looks miraculous? You'll explain it away. Something rational. It was signs. It was this. This is actually what happened. It's not a miracle. This is what actually happened. Right? Do you see how we do that with our worldviews? If you believe in God and you're firm in God, then you'll always be like, there's God, there's God, there's God. Right? And even if something looks completely out of the character of God, you won't say, well, now there's no God. You'll just say, well, God's doing something I don't quite understand. You see how you fall in line with that worldview. If you don't believe in God, then even what looks like God, you'll explain it away as not being God. That is how our minds work. That is how we work. We are not locked into these worldviews, but we are firmly in its grasp. And it takes significant events to get us to change their minds. If I ever say an aliens are real, you know I encountered an alien. Like, for real. Like, I got into their spaceship, they did some stuff on me, and I came back. Like, you can be certain of it, because I kid you not, I do not believe in aliens, period. All right? You see how we're locked into those worldviews? You see how you're locked into those things? If something doesn't completely match up with your worldview, you'll explain it away by what you believe your worldview to be. Again, with resurrection. If Paul and Peter are trying to bring this to the world that doesn't believe in resurrection, they're going to be like, that's not resurrection. That's this. This is what we believe. This is what happened. They have an uphill battle so stinking high and long, it is insurmountable unless they actually encounter a physical resurrected person. And it wasn't just Paul and Peter and the followers, as we'll see next week, but Paul relates in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people witnessed Jesus' resurrected body. And again, we see through Acts that it wasn't just, just that they were telling people, hey, believe in Jesus, he's resurrected, but they were able in power through the Holy Spirit to testify to the validity of, validity of this by other miracles, by other signs living in this new resurrected way of life that's really complex. And that's how it got going. And that's why it took off. And that's why people's worldviews were changing so radically, so quickly, because they were experiencing something so real and true and resurrected. So as I said, we're going to hit it. We're going to look at the worldviews of non-Jewish world the Jewish world around the first century, right? Palestine, right in the midst of Roman, the Roman Empire. But again, just because the Romans were in, in, in um, ruling, the Greek, the Greek influence was really the major influence on culture. So it was very Greek culture, big time at the time. So we're going to look at that here in a second. But first, how do we find a worldview of a culture? Well, it's fascinating, actually. Um, some different ways N.T. Wright brings along is, well, if you want to know about how a culture viewed the afterlife, look at how they, how they did their funeral. You ever thought about that? It's kind of interesting. Think about how we do our funerals. It's kind of fascinating. I know some people who will not passionately disagree with cremation because they're like, I'm going to have a resurrected body. Why would I destroy that? You will find in Judaism, they greatly started to tailor back stoning to preserve the bodies. They did not cremate, that's for sure, because you needed your bones. Your bones, you were going to be resurrected. Fascinating thing in Judaism. Non-Jewish world, again, you look at some, and, and I, should, I should have said this off the bat, these aren't always explicit these aren't always, these are not grounds for which people build these things on, but they're kind of supplemental information that's kind of, you know, kind of supports it, but you don't build your theology or ideology or your historical argument on these things. But it's fascinating. I mean, you look at the non-Jewish world, the Greeks, um, they would sometimes, you'd see, uh, you've probably seen it in movies or stories, where they'll have coins on their eyes or coins in their mouths, and that's how they will um, kind of bury them or burn them. Why? 
is into the afterlife to travel across the river of forgetfulness, you have to pay the ferry. Kind of fascinating, huh? It kind of gives you an idea what they were expecting to happen to them when they were dying. So we can gain some things there. We can also gain things, probably the best way to gain things, especially for the ancient world when we're going that far back and we don't have always these, you know, we don't have a textbook that they used in school that gave them all the history of the world up until that point, all right? We have different things. The best way to look at a worldview of a culture is to look at their stories, their poetry, their literature. What were the stories that they were telling? And again, this makes sense, right? You watch a movie in our day and age right now, and you could say, political statement, political statement. Oh, yep, there's our worldview. It's just shining through, right? Every movie you go see, every book you see, every show you watch, you can see there's, there's the worldviews. There's the worldviews, right? There's the political statements, all being said. So it's quite fascinating to look at literature, and that's what we're going to do. Let's start with the non-Jewish world. Here we go. Let's do some history. Non-Jewish world. The biggest name in the non-Jewish world for the Greeks leading up to the first century is Homer. You've heard of Homer. I hope you've heard of Homer. Holy cow. You better have heard of Homer. In the Iliad, right, he wrote two of the greatest works in the history of the world, the Iliad and the Odyssey. In the Iliad, it's about, if you've seen the movie Troy, that's the Iliad, all right? Achilles says to Priam, the father of Hector, when after mourning his son Hector's death, who Achilles killed, this is what he says, you must endure and not be brokenhearted. Lamenting for your son will do no good at all. You will be dead yourself before you bring him back to life. If Homer is the greatest, Asiclus is the second greatest. He's the father of Greek tragedies. Right? He says in the Eumenides, Apollo speaking at the Oropagus, once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Anastasis, Anastasis, it's been a while since I've been in Greek, that is the Greek word for resurrection. There is no resurrection. What you need to gain, Homer and Asiclus are showing the worldview of that time. There is no resurrection. Period. End of story. N.T. Wright goes way further. We don't have time for that. But this is essentially what he's saying. They did not believe in resurrection. Again, they'll have stories of the afterlife, and it's poetic, but it's always, it's kind of like Sheol in the Old Testament, which we may get to, we may not, but it's not resurrection. You don't come back. Nobody came back. Once they died, they were dead, all right? Let's move on from that. That's good. Uh, next slide. Ooh, yes, thank you. That's great. Brings up an excellent time to really give you a definition of what resurrection is and what it's not. Resurrection means bodily life after life after death. I'll explain. If you prefer bodily life after the state of death, it is dying and then coming back to life again in something like the same sort of life that humans presently experience, like we're presently experiencing right now. Essentially, death is reversed. That is resurrection. Now, why I want to explain that, and why it's probably a good thing to take a picture of this, you probably aren't going to have time to write it down, we've got to keep scooting, all right? Why this is important to know this, and why, when I was reading this, I felt this thing inside of me, like, ooh, you're right. I thought that when I died, and I go to be with Jesus, that was resurrection. N.T. Wright, Timothy Keller, no, 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 no. Grant, you got too much Plato. You got too much Plato in your theology right now. Let's move to Plato and then I'll come back. All right, if Homer, as N.T. Wright says, if Homer is the Old Testament, the New Testament is Plato, the philosopher of Plato. What is Plato? What did Plato say? Body, bad. Soul, good. All right? He was the big person who was the proponent of the soul. We have this immortal thing inside of us. Your body is bad, your body is a prison. When you die, that's like the best thing that can happen to you, is die, your soul is released, and now you live a disembodied existence. Disembodied. No more body. Your soul is free. You're woo, floating around somewhere, doing something, nobody really knows, but you don't have a body, and you're not here on earth. 
Why is that important? As I talked about, when thinking about what is resurrection, as I said, I thought when I died, I'd go to be with Jesus, and that was resurrection. Not quite. Not wrong, but it's not the full thing of resurrection. That's why, uh, if you could go back to the definition of resurrection, it talks about a bodily life after life after death. So what the Bible teaches is that when you die, you will go and be with Jesus, where Jesus is in heaven. You'll have some type of existence. It's speculative theology at this point. We don't know if you'll have a body. We don't know if you'll be in a soul, if you'll be disembodied. We don't quite know. But what we do know is that resurrection means you're coming back. You're coming back into a physical body. A body that will look like to some degree, the body you now have here and now. Recall Jesus in John chapter 20. Jesus in his resurrected body has holes in his hands. The holes were placed there in his physical life. Yes, there were some things that changed about him. They didn't recognize him at first, but then they did recognize him. So we can deter, we can determine that he came in a form of a body that looked something like he looked when he was here on earth before he died. He says to Thomas, I have the slit, I have the stab wound from the Roman when I was on the cross. Put your hand here. Is that kind of interesting to you? Is that helping? Does that make sense? Resurrection is you die, you're in a state of death for some determined amount of time, and you come back. Death is reversed. You have a physical body. Does that make sense? So you see immediately how the non-Jewish world, and again, go to the next slide. That quote is great. I love it. Um, yep. Uh, yep. One more. Yep. No. Uh, the one. There it is. Yep. Those. There we go. Those who followed Plato. Cicero was another great philosopher who kind of was the same in line with Plato. Did not want a body again. Right? Body, bad. Soul, free. Awesome. Those who followed Homer knew you would not get one. There is no resurrection. Why is this important? This is important because if you're Paul and you're trying to take this made-up thing, the resurrection of Jesus, to a world that one, if they're in one camp, is like, it's impossible. Shut up, Paul. And another camp is like, who wants resurrection? Who wants it? I want, my body to be, I want my body to die so I can be free and soul and eternal bliss. They wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't want it. They would either deny it outright or they would totally just not want it. It wouldn't work. Again, the worldviews, as I talked about, we're in those worldviews. They are strong in us. No one's going to buy into this because they don't see things that way. The non-Jewish world did not believe in resurrection. Also something to note, go to the Greek words, shades, ghosts, phantoms, resurrection. They had Greek words for shades. Shades was kind of, according to Homer, this is what you would become when you died. You become a shade. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. They have Greek words. They had a Greek word for ghost. They had a Greek word for phantom. They had a Greek word for resurrection. N.T. Wright kind of says, kind of like, funny. He's like, if the world back then was more accustomed to seeing ghosts and visions and phantoms, then they would be better equipped to, to see the difference between a ghost and a phantom and a vision and a real person. <laughs> it's kind of a humorous way of thinking about that. Does that make sense? They had Greek words for these things. They knew about these things. So they would easily say, well, that's a ghost. That was a vision. That was a spirit. Spirit also is pneuma. I didn't put it up there. I totally forgot. They had Greek words for these things. They were accustomed to these things. So they wouldn't jump to resurrection just willy-nilly. They would probably, well, are you sure it wasn't a vision? Or are you sure it wasn't a ghost? Sure it wasn't an angel, as we'll see in the Jewish ideology? They wouldn't accept it. They didn't accept it. The non-Jewish world did not accept resurrection. They did not believe it. They did not hold it as a possibility. Some did not even want it. Paul and the others had an uphill battle so insurmountable that only a 
physical resurrection of Jesus and sightings and people seeing it for themselves and the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's minds and hearts and to see it differently. That was absolutely what it would have to take. Let's look at the Jewish world. The Jewish world is even more surprising. As I said, there's three groups in the Jewish world that makes up the Jewish worldview. The first one is the Sadducees. They did not believe in resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Grant, Grant loses all credibility on one joke. <laughs> I just lost it. We're gone. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, you will inevitably come to a discourse between Jesus and the Sadducees, and there's always that narrative note that says the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, and then blah, 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 blah. Sadducees. Why did they not believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees for two reasons. One, they held to the Torah, the first five books of the Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, firmly. That was their Bible. The history and the prophets, you know, not without some validity, but no, if it wasn't in the Torah, then no, it does not exist. And for them, they did not see resurrection being uh, propagated in the Torah. Second reason, the Sadducees were the ruling elites. They were the ruling class, right? They were the aristocrats. They were the high society people. If your people who you are ruling over believe in resurrection and now have uh, some good evidence or good reasons to maybe be flippant with their lives to overthrow what they feel like is not good rulership, they become dangerous and difficult to manage and have power over. So it was not only theological, it was political. They didn't want people to believe in resurrection because they didn't want people to get too flippant with their lives and start a revolt and be okay with dying. That makes sense? Kind of fascinating. Second group, Plato Jews. Essentially, the big name on that is the philosopher Philo. He was a Jewish philosopher. Again, essentially like Plato, when you die, you go to be with God in a very disembodied your soul is set free. That's how you live. But again, no resurrection. Pharisees, surprisingly, are the only group who believe in any form of resurrection. They believe in a general resurrection at the end of time when evil is defeated and Israel is restored from exile. Let's explain here really quick because it's fascinating. The reasons why the Pharisees held to some form of resurrection was because... They saw in the Bible a cycle. The Old Testament has a cycle. As a cycle, it starts like this. Intimacy with God, rebellion from God, exile or some form of punishment from God, repentance or God restoring them, and then back to intimacy with God. All right, so you can see it plainly at the beginning of the Bible. Right? Intimacy with God, Genesis 1 2. Rebellion from God. Genesis 3, they eat the apple, they disobey. Genesis 4, they cast them out of the garden, right? There's some form of exile. There's a rift in their relationship. Um, I don't know if repentance is fully propagated there, but it's God again, though, restores them. He restores Israel into covenant through Noah and especially through Abraham. And then they have greater intimacy with each other. If you read First and Second Kings, hugely hugely everywhere in that. And again, the Pharisees popped up in what's called the Second Temple, all right? 586 B.C., temple gets destroyed by Babylon, right? And the Jews are taken into Babylon as exiles, right? So they come back and they start rebuilding the temple. So they call that period of time the Second Temple Judaism, right? Leading all the way up to Jesus. Again, prophets, people close to God, were thinking about this exile, and they were thinking about their relationship with God, and they saw this cycle working in their own relationship with God. And what they came to was that they felt like, not felt like, I think it was obviously the Lord working through them, but they started to see that the real exile is death. The real exile is death. That's the real separation from God is death. That's the real punishment for sin, capital S, right? And they saw that in Adam and Eve, and they could trace it all the way through their history. And they saw death 
really as the greatest punishment. And that's why you can read Psalms and you read David's Psalms. David's Psalms doesn't, David doesn't talk about resurrection, right? He talks about Sheol. He talks about this, almost this, either it's nothingness or it's a place kind of like Homer where it sucks. It just sucks. It's just nothing compared to life here on earth. And so whatever it is, David kind of has that worldview of things. But they saw it as, yeah, it's kids that kind of, it is a sucky place, and it's kind of like an exile from God. And God so loved us, and he chose this land, and he chose us as his people to have relationship with us, and he chose it to be here on earth. And so would God deliver us from the greatest exile that our sin has caused, death? They said, yes, I think so. And so the development of resurrection theology starts to happen in the second temple Judaism period. Here are the passages that are the most explicit resurrection passages. You have Daniel 12, 2 through 3. And take a picture, write those down, look at them. These are the most explicit resurrection passages in the hope of resurrection in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 19, Hosea 13, 14, Ezekiel 37, is more of a metaphorical um, depiction imagery of this cycle that I just talked about. And it's kind of the imagery, the metaphor for God redeeming his people from exile, from death, right? Ezekiel 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones chapter where the bones take on sinew and they regain their form and they stand up and they walk. And that's really the metaphor for this resurrection. God restoring Israel, restoring them to the land, restoring those who have died, restoring his covenant with Israel. The covenant that said, I promise this land, I promise people, I promise you blessing, you are my people. Why is this important? Pharisees believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. These three, the top three, Daniel, Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, Isaiah, Hosea, that was just fun to say right there. Daniel, Isaiah, Hosea, it's all surrounded by this day of the Lord. It's always looking at the end of time. At the end of time, right? God is going to restore Israel from exile. He's going to restore them. They're going to have land. They're going to have the ownership of the land. He's going to have intimate relationship with us. And those who have died before will come back to life. And yes, this will happen during the time of the Messiah for sure. That's how they viewed things. But check this out. Peter, Paul, the writers of the New Testament, were trying to convince the Pharisees the resurrection has happened. It's started. They would take one look around and say, Rome's still in power. Idiot. We're still oppressed. Do we have ownership of this land? No. Do you know your Old Testament Bible? Idiot. They wouldn't be able to accept it. Evil was still reigning. We weren't in power of our own land. Nobody else was resurrected. It wasn't supposed to happen with one person being resurrected. So they wouldn't, if everybody wasn't resurrected, then they wouldn't take it. They would say, no, idiots. And that's why you watch, you read the, the Gospels and you read Acts, and the Pharisees are constantly against Paul and Peter because they didn't believe resurrection would happen this way. They couldn't accept it. They couldn't see things that way. They couldn't see things that way. What we need to grab, what we need to understand, that the non-Jewish world would not accept resurrection, did not believe in resurrection. And the Jewish world didn't believe in resurrection in this way at all. Pharisees believed in a general resurrection, but one look at, at their theology, oh, you're saying one man was resurrected in the middle of time and Rome's still in power and we're not in control of our own land. Heck no, I don't accept it. You're on some type of first century drug. Some other interesting facts to note. No other would-be messiahs leading up to the time of Jesus, nor after the time of Jesus. None of their followers ever promoted resurrection of their leaders. There are no accounts. Nobody. And there are many messiahs that came before Jesus, claiming to be the messiah, right? Old Testament prophesies about a messiah. Jewish theology, their messiah would come. Nobody 
none of their followers after they died were like, hey, so-and-so's resurrected. Nobody did that. Why? Because according to their theology, and again, the Old Testament and the Jewish worldview, the Messiah would not die. Read the Gospels. Every time Jesus talks about his death or his resurrection, read it, the disciples are always like, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Right? It's so great. You have this great scene where Jesus is like, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's like, blessed Peter, God has revealed this to you. And then he makes his first prediction, I believe it's in Matthew, he makes his first prediction of like, the Son of Man is going to die. And Peter's like, no. No. Uh-uh. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't just like flippant. Peter didn't believe the Messiah. None of them believed the Messiah was going to die. Look at Jesus' burial. When Mary and the women went to the empty tomb, they weren't going there because they were like, Jesus is going to be alive. Woohoo! We're going to go see Jesus. No! They were going with spices to coat the dead body so it wouldn't smell terrible. None of them. You see it nowhere in the Gospels of the disciples like, oh, all good. You're going to die, Jesus? No worries, man. We'll wait for you when you come back because we know you're going to be resurrected. None of them. There is no account. Read the Gospels this week. Read them all. All right? Read any one of them, and you will never find the disciples being like, oh yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I knew he was coming back. The Old Testament did not put forth that, nor did any of their texts show that the Messiah would be resurrected. Now, disclaimer, three and a half gold stars for anyone who is like, Grant, what about the suffering servant passages in Isaiah? Well done. Well done. If he didn't, that's okay. Alright? Suffering servant passages found in Isaiah 40 through 55 were viewed uh, at the time as pertaining to Israel. Alright? It was only after Jesus' resurrection that Paul, being the biggest one, looked back on those passages and said, there. That's why Jesus had to die. That's the prophecy, there is where we see the Messiah dying for the real issue, our sin. And so the suffering servant passages came to be known as those prophecies. But at the time, they did not see those that way. They saw it as a general resurrection of Israel. Interesting notes. Interesting notes. Again, I bring back to the worldview, and I'm sorry I'm taking time. the worldviews did not accept this idea, this belief. And if Peter and Paul and Jesus' followers were making this up, they had some type of spirit, even if they had some type of spiritual experience, people that day and age would not accept it as resurrection because nobody accepted it as resurrection. Nobody was looking for resurrection. Nobody, many people didn't want resurrection in the non-Jewish world. They couldn't see things that way. They had a certain worldview. And so the historian must ask, how did so many people's worldviews all of a sudden change so quickly? And not just in small ways, huge ways. The historian has to give an account. Why did this new way, this new, this new sect that came out of Judaism, why did they change so many customs, deep-rooted customs of Jewish belief and religion? Why did they change them so much? Why did resurrection, who, had, who has three, four passages in the Bible, why did that come up to front and center as the foundation for their entire belief system? Old Testament Jews would say, Torah, Moses, what God did in, in Egypt, the law, that's the foundation for everything. And these people are like, no, we're going to go on three passages. That's our foundation. It wouldn't have taken. You had to have something significant happen. It wasn't just that. You have to have, why in the world did this group change their Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday? Oh, oh man, it just works better for my schedule, guys. Can we kind of like flip this thing to Sunday? It would just be way easier on me. 
cows just like it more, you know, my, my knees and my back. No! All right? You don't just change that. That Sabbath was a huge, huge pillar of their faith in Judaism. And it was Saturday, every day. And if you ran on Saturday, you would have huge consequences in your Jewish community. All right? Breaking the Sabbath was massively, a massive, massive crime in their culture. You have to explain that, historian. Why did that change so quickly? Why was circumcision done away with as a distinctive mark as separating you from the Gentile world? Why did all of a sudden the Jews who were like, nope, can't eat with you, can't touch you, can't talk to you Gentiles, all of a sudden now they're eating with Gentiles? The historian has to give a solution. They have to give an answer. Why did that happen? Why the temple being the central place of worship for Judaism, their most prized possession, where God was present with them, why did that all of a sudden change to now the temple is in you and each one of you? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Why did that change? How did that change? You don't just change that Bible. Let's have a debate. And I'm going to reason with you, and I'm going to show you why we should change this. A significant event had to have happened. A significant event for which totally just tossed their worldview out. And so tossed it out in such a way that they had to completely reinterpret and rethink their worldview now in light of this significant event. I want you to see that. And that's what happened. It is by far the best explanation for why all these changes happened and why Christianity even gained any sort of ground in the Jewish community, the Jewish world, and the non-Jewish world because they actually witnessed a physical resurrection of Jesus. And it wasn't just his followers. It was people who hated it. Paul was against it. He was a person trying to trying to persecute the church, he came to faith in it. James, half-brother of Jesus, and John, it at least alludes to the fact that James was not a follower of Jesus. His own half-brother was like, I don't know about this guy. All right, It at least alludes to it, so there's at least some belief there that James was not a follower. And then James becomes the, the head honcho in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem, in the early church. How in the world does that happen? It doesn't happen through debate. Sure as heck doesn't happen through hey, we're going we're gonna, to you know, fudge some of these stories. We're going to tell this story, and everybody's going to believe us because everybody believes this. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Well, I've spent a lot of time, and I'm not going to take any more time, but the implications and the applications of this are huge. And I want to leave that to you. All right? I want to leave that to you this week to think on this. All right? I want you to think about this. And I hope this brought you closer. Doing history brings you closer to the event. I remember I had a history teacher in high school who brought shackles from the time of slavery in America. And he's like, I hope this brings you closer to it. And it did. When you're holding shackles from that time period, it brings you closer to that event. You can, you can feel it. You can kind of relate to it in a more intimate way. And I hope by doing history this morning, it can bring you closer to that that actual event that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he is alive today, just as he was 2,000 years ago. He is alive today. And that, I hope, boy, that should change a lot. That should change a lot about what's possible. That should change a lot about how you view yourself. That should change a lot about how you view the world. That should change a lot about your worldview. And I hope it does, and I want you to think about it. And again, this is one thing. Next week, we're going to talk about the two other significant historical events that happened, one being the empty tomb and the witnesses, people witnessing this resurrection. Again, it's kind of hard to spin a resurrection story if people can go to the tomb and be like, uh, dead body, idiot, communist. It's kind of hard to do that, right? And again... 500 people, as Paul would witness to in 1 Corinthians 15, have seen him. I guarantee you, 500 people in this world cannot keep a secret. Heck no. The great uh, national advisor to Nixon, some guy high up, 
has this famous statement of saying, I believe in the resurrection, because 12 men were keeping a secret about Watergate, and it took two weeks for them to all turn on each other and start telling the truth. And so you're telling me 500 people could keep a secret? 500 people and some of those people going to their death? I'm going to die for a fable, uh, an imagination, figment of somebody's imagination, just an interesting story? I don't know. That's next week. So we're going to see how those give us necessary and sufficient conditions, those are words we'll come back to, as to the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you'll stand with me, we'll close in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful. We're so, so grateful that we can know and be certain, Jesus, of your resurrection. And we're grateful that it's not just through history that we can know that. We're grateful for how you continue to reveal yourself to us all in new ways and different ways, ways personal to us, ways that we can see, because we know we only see things how we are. God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for your care. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and a mind to know and a heart to be open to you. Pray that we would be able to feel confident and secure in our faith, that we put it in something that is true and just not just something that felt good at the time or people talk really convincingly about it and I got no other reasons to not believe, so I might as well believe. No, God, we're just grateful. We pray that we can see it and that you would help us to meditate on what this means for us, that you are alive. You are alive. And that we have the hope of resurrection. That we will come back. That death, our death will be undone someday and reversed. We'll be here with a physical body, a renewed body, a new body in many different ways. What does that mean for us? How does that change our worldview? How does that change how we live our lives? God, help us. Guide us and lead us in all truth, Holy Spirit. We pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.